Welcome to Naked Reflections, brought to you from the Wolf Institute. I'm Ed Kessler, and each week I'll be taking an in-depth look at the stories reported by our friends over at the Naked Scientists. What does the latest scientific stuff mean for the rest of us? Stay with us and find out. Before she became a highly successful children's book author, Beatrix Potter was a self-taught botanist. Her beautiful drawings of fungi and algae survive as classics of scientific illustration. When she approached the Linnean Society about presenting a paper on her discoveries, she was rejected. Why? Because she was a woman. After strenuous interventions from well-placed friends, the president grudgingly agreed to have her paper read by a man. Apparently, whoever he was, he did it so badly that the paper made no impact. When the meeting broke up, Beatrix made her feelings known. I informed the president, she said, that my discoveries would be on the scientific record in 10 years' time, whether he liked it or not. And then I departed, giggling. She left for the Lake District to write her books and the rest is history. Have we made any progress since Victorian times? Or are women still subjugated or at least patronised when it comes to science, religion, politics or academia? Is an extract from an article written in 2018 by Joe Reynolds of the Royal Society of Chemistry for the Naked Scientists. It is shocking that only 9% of chemistry professors in the UK are women. Clearly, between undergraduate study and reaching senior positions in academia in the UK, the relative proportion of female chemists drops by 35 percentage points. It was quite a shock to me to realize that what people are reporting 20 years since I left academia is familiar to me, and particularly disappointing to see that little has changed. My guests this week are Catherine Arnold, Master of St Edmunds College, Cambridge, note the term Master, former UK ambassador to Mongolia, with experience in the Middle East and counterterrorism, and also Dr. Esther Miriam Wagner, Executive Director here at the Wolf Institute, with her PhD at Cambridge, experience in Oxford, and a specialist in medieval Jewish-Christian-Muslim relations. There's plenty for us to discuss. Now, both of you could be characterised as alpha females. How tough has it been? Catherine? Ed, well, thank you very much. I think the first thing I'd say is I have absolutely no idea what an alpha female is, so I'm going to have to leave it to others to judge whether that's what I am or not. Um, in terms, if you're if you're describing that as how hard has it been to get where I am now, I can honestly say I'm not sure it's been any harder or easier because of my gender. But I also think I'm very lucky. Interestingly, I think a lot of people find that it's once they've broken through a perceived glass ceiling that the complexity starts, because up until that point, the narrative has been very much that the men um, will do better if they support more junior women and are therefore very ostentatiously perhaps seen to be doing so. But the moment that the woman has joined them, um, perhaps she becomes a threat. Um, I'm saying this all slightly in the subjunctive or questioning it because I haven't found that to be my personal experience. And so to some extent, I'm I'm reading that as a secondhand anecdote, although I think the evidence that I've seen is compelling enough um, for me to say that there definitely still is a problem. Um, but I find it quite hard to tell you exactly where that 
problem is. And I feel lucky because I don't feel that any decision about me has ever been taken on the basis of my gender. But that could be as much because I'm not looking for that um, as that that is the reality. Miriam, is that um, does that sound uh, a correct for your experience? I think my experience has been very, very different. I mean, I would also not call myself an alpha female. Uh, I mean, the, the animals where you have, for example, real alpha females are hyenas. And there, you know, all the females are in a hierarchy above men. And uh, they basically behave like men and other animal communities. It's just a swapping of the gender. The power structures are the same. You have all females and then you have all males and the females get to eat first and they get to dominate uh, all sorts of social behavior. Uh, and I don't think I've ever been like this, but I, I've grown up in a quite a patriarchal society. I've always, I'm always very, very jealous of the self-confidence that I find in, in British and in American females because they have grown up with uh, without these, these structures where they've been constantly put down. I mean, I I grew up with my grandmother telling me that I need to serve my my boyfriends. You know, you know, they they need to have food and and drink before me. And um, you know, all life would play out in the in the male sphere. And this was East Germany. You know, this is not a, a, a sort of a third world country. Um, and similarly, when I was studying, I mean, I I, mean, I remember going to a conference and there were thirty men and I was the only female. And uh, you really did feel like an alien. And uh, I think I still carry this the sort of subconscious, unconscious bias against women with me. Um, when I hear about a professor or a doctor, I assume usually that's a male. And it takes me a while to understand that I really should change this. I should really sort of or, or immediately think of a, of a female, but I, I, but I don't because it's so ingrained. It's so sort of in me that it's very, very difficult to get out. And do you feel, Catherine, the very term master of the college it's always something uh, that I found rather uncomfortable, um, partly because of the male language and partly because um, uh, as a person of faith, I feel that it's the almighty who's master rather than the head of a college. So they're both those. But, but what about the patriarchal element of being a head of a college as master? And it's a very interesting question, Ed. And um, people have asked me that question in lots of different ways since I've um, arrived. And um, yours is one of the most thoughtful because you've you've put it in that religious context as well which actually no one has done before and therefore um, I've not thought about it in that way. Um, the usual comment is either um, a joke uh, or a serious question that implies in usually in both cases that I should have a problem with it um, and I do find that very interesting because it's just a label. Um, it's a label that everyone who's done this role before has had, um, and it's a label that I now have. Now, it so happens that they've all been male and I'm female, um, but I don't have a problem with that. But I think it goes back to some of these unconscious biases that um, Miriam has spoken to. Um, because what for me is much more interesting is when Girton has its first male mistress, will he be comfortable being called a mistress? Miriam, you, you touched on your upbringing in East Germany and the very sort of uh, uh, patriarchal society in which you were brought up. Um, have you experienced that in the Oxbridge environment um, and also in your area of research? I'm intrigued to know what, what was going on in that medieval period. Was it presumably a very gendered environment? Definitely. When I came to Oxford and Cambridge Field in 2003, 2004, there was still a real misogyny in most of the older colleges, at least. Uh, I, I mean, 
when I went to dinner uh, regularly, I was usually the only woman among 20 men, 30 men. And um, again, there's a feeling of alienhood because simply, be, you know, you are on your own as a woman and you have to be, you have to be, I think, quite a strong personality to, to not be bothered by it. And again, this is something that I see in my, in my historical sources. I was talking to Tara earlier because Tara, uh, who's recording this, she, she was an MFA student and we, we discussed um, the role of uh, uh, women in, 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 in medieval Cairo. And again, we see the same that we had maybe in 18th, 19th century uh, uh, Europe. There are always women, there are always very strong women who refuse to take that female role, who by some circumstance managed to um, you know, take, a, to take on a, what would have been a male role. There's this woman called Wuxia in um, Al-Wuxia, the wild one in, in, in 12th century Cairo. And she, um, she's a businesswoman. And she's a businesswoman because she is a foreigner. She doesn't have any family that can sort of put her in her place. She came with her immediate parents into a, a foreign land, and there's no extended family that can show her, you know, that she needs to be at home. So once her parents are dead, she actually becomes an independent businesswoman, also because she needs to. She needs to sustain herself. And she's a very successful businesswoman. And she, she does all sorts of interesting things. She has a, a child out of wedlock. She makes sure her, her child is not called a bastard by basically letting herself be caught in flagranti uh, by the community leaders. So everyone knows who the father of the child is, uh, even though she, she gives birth out of wedlock. And she, she gets excommunicated and she is uh, sort of uh, thrown out of society. But she always manages to come in because she has the money to pay uh, off various people and to pay her way back into society by giving money to the different synagogues. So I think there's always been a way for particularly strong women uh, to pay, break through the power structures, but it's hard, it's a struggle, because the power structures only enable the most determined of women uh, to break through. So in a way, it was being others, it was being the other that uh, was her context. When you read Foucault, when you read Foucault on how we reconstruct our own personalities, it's all about power. It's all about asserting your own superiority over others. So, of course, I mean, what we've seen in patriarchal societies is that half of the population have asserted some sort of superiority over the other half, saying that they are better because and, and they are, you know, they've been aided by scripture saying that, you know, women were created after men. Women aren't, don't have a soul. Um, you know, this was a discussion still in the 18th century. There's this really great example of this, um, this, this one woman writer falling off the chair when <laughs> they, they were discussing whether women have a soul. And she thought it was hilarious. But I mean, these are, these are discussions that are only changing now in the 20th century. Um, and again, because as a result of, of very, very major crises, I mean, without the Second World War, feminism and women wouldn't be where we are. I mean, only this massive crisis, again, we're in a crisis right now, right? These crises are really the provide sort of disruption that actually enables society to change, to really, really sort of profoundly change. It is interesting if we touch on the present crisis we're going through, the COVID-19 crisis, what impact that might have in terms of questions of gender, because there is this sort of privatization, we're all in our homes, um, and there's almost a rebalancing because we're in our homes. Um, and that's something I think you, Miriam, have been working on. 
Yes. So we had uh, a number of webinars where we talked about the changing role of of, of uh, sort of the, the, the change in gender segregation, uh, and it's most noticeably in in synagogue and worship in synagogues because we actually uh, when people attend a service on Zoom, all male and female sort of images appear next to each other rather than uh, in separation and sort of first the men and then the women. So people think that there may be some changes to gender segregation after this. It's entirely possible if this goes on for long enough. Catherine, uh, in terms of this question of, um, of being other, I wonder with your experience in the Middle East in, for the Foreign and Commonwealth Office, you worked in, in lands which are, uh, remain very patriarchal. How did you navigate that? Well, I think that concept of other is key. Um, and it, it particularly resonated when, um, when um, Miriam was talking about um, her experience growing up. Um, and if I take that in sort of two halves, I think to respond firstly to what Miriam was saying, that's what I meant about being lucky. I don't think there are many places that you can grow up in the world and there aren't many professions that you could have chosen where you are likely to find as few impediments or biases against you for being a woman than those that I've experienced. And that's exactly what I mean about luck. And what I think that that gives people like me is the self-confidence to say, well, why on earth would you treat me diff differently? I mean, that's what for me always strikes me. I fundamentally cannot understand why uh, two people with equal attributes would be treated differently on the basis of something like sex or gender. And probably because I go into the world with that fundamental belief, if I find sexism, I tend to be able to laugh it off very easily. Um, and I tend to think that the person who's portraying it is the one who is lacking. And I'll just go around them. And I won't take it personally. I'll just go, well, they obviously are a little bit mad. Um, I'll go and find somebody else who can give me what I need or want or or, or have to, to have the support I need, um, the person who can actually achieve the objective that I'm after. So because I've got that armour, um, I think it means that I don't notice it and that it is also much easier. Um, and that's what I meant by being lucky. And therefore, when I'm looking at this issue as I go around the world, one of the things I think is so important is that we all recognise what we're saying to children. And I think that that's an area which I think is fascinating, that even in a society where we think um, both genders are able uh, to a greater extent perhaps than almost any time in history to fulfil who they want to be, and I mean that as much for men um, as for women, we still are really very gendered when we talk to children. We still do tend to say to little girls, oh, aren't you pretty? Um, and little boys, oh, aren't you brave? Um, and I think it's just so important that we stop to reflect on what, what that might actually be doing as their minds and their perceptions of the world are forming. But I think going back to your question of other, um, that is the advantage. Because whenever you are other, whenever you are inherently foreign, you are automatically alien and therefore um, different and therefore differently accepted. And that is as true of gender as it is whether you make cultural faux pas or, frankly, in your own society, you're seen as a little bit odd. Um, if you go overseas, no one will think you're odd because they'll just think that's what it is to be English. And so there's a huge discount factor for being other. 
listening to Miriam sort of coming from East Germany, being an other, having an other upbringing, uh, probably gave her not just a strength, but uh, a sensitivity to, um, to those who are going through the same thing. And I wonder, Miriam, in terms of your students, um, whether you see them in a completely different way uh, than yourself? Because often we think of our students and we think, oh, we were like that 20 years ago or so. Um, but it sounds like that's not the case for you. No, I think I'm often very, very jealous of, of the confidence that they have and uh, uh, sort of just complete lack of being restrained because they're, they're, they're female. Um, and it's really interesting. A lot of my female students... They have never really commented on the on the on the gender, except for the older ones, the slightly older students. They came in, and, and also the ones that came from more uh, traditional societies. I had one uh, quite orthodox Jewish student who said that if she hadn't had me as a teacher, she would never have dared to sort of go for this degree to really sort of do an MPhil, and then she wouldn't have had a career sort of now trying to help Ethiopian women in Israel again, trying to break free of, of particular traditions that, that hold them back. I think, I mean, it's both, it goes both ways. Again, if I have a student from, as I said, an American or British background, it's very, very different than having a student from, from a different place. You're listening to Naked Reflections with me, Ed Kessler, and my guests this week are Catherine Arnold, Master's in Edmonds College, Cambridge, and Dr. Esther Miriam Wagner, Executive Director of the Wolf Institute. Here's another article from the Naked Scientist website to take us into part two. Arguably, the world's most famous female scientist is Marie Curie, a Polish chemist and physicist who set many firsts in her career. In 1903, she was the first woman to be awarded a Nobel Prize, one of the most prestigious awards in science, shared with Antoine-Henri Becquerel and her husband, Pierre, for their contributions to physics. Becquerel had noted strange rays coming from the element uranium, and together they discovered a new property of elements that would later be known as radioactivity. Curie is attributed with coining the phrase, and the realization that the radiation was a result of the atom itself paved the way for a whole new field of science. Curie took legal steps to make sure her work was not attributed solely to her husband, not because she distrusted him, but because she knew how the cookie crumbled. She was the first female teacher to be appointed at Paris's prestigious École Normale Supérieure. And of course, in Cambridge, we had Rosalind Franklin who worked with Crick and Watson on the DNA and did not achieve the credit she deserved and was even described as the dark lady of DNA, compounding both gender and racial prejudice in a particularly lamentable way. You might also have watched the film Hidden Figures, which included or highlighted Katherine Johnson, one of a small number of black mathematicians who were ignored by NASA and closer to my home, St Edmunds College. I know looking around the table at a college dinner and I look on the wall and I see these wonderful portraits, but Catherine, they're all men. I think you had the idea of highlighting the 50 women of St Edmunds to counteract this. Well, it seemed an excellent anniversary to celebrate. St Edmunds was the first um, now college to accept both genders um, and we have had so many incredible women who have um, been through St. Edmunds or are currently at St. Edmunds, turning that um, story of 50 years, I mean, it is only 50 years, but it's still longer than any other college in Cambridge, um, into 50 personal stories. Um, wasn't my idea, but I thought it was a very good idea. 
And going back to something that Miriam was saying, I think the really important mark of success won't be the first woman to be master of St. Edmunds or the first woman to be head of any organisation. It's when you can look back in 30 or 40 years time and see as many women as men. And I think it is important that that balance is maintained. For example, in Cambridge at the moment, there are now a majority of heads of house who are female. Um, that ought to be celebrated. And as far as I've heard, it is celebrated. But if that trend turned into um, more and more women and those women weren't being replaced by men, all the narrative were twisted to one of, oh, well, now there's no space for men. Men still have power. And if people who have power feel that they are being prejudiced against, some of them will use it not for the common good, which I would say is gender equality, um, but for their own good and re-entrench um, that uh, male patriarchal framework. And I mean, you see it online. I mean, the levels of misogyny um, on online platforms, um, levels of all sorts of hate on online platforms are extraordinary. But but I think that there is a, a troubling uh, misogynistic narrative that has um, come out of various waves of feminism. Whereas women have faced structural impediments and sought to break through them as a positive change, men see, rightly or wrongly, new structural impediments and see that as a negative change. And that creates anger um, or lassitude. And I think both are very dangerous for women as well as men. Miriam, would you agree with that? Yeah, well, I think added to this also... Um sort of stereotypes about men that you see still perpetuated without so completely unpunished, like cartoons which show that men are completely uh, incapable of looking after children, of running a household, and then a woman comes home and, and, and makes sure everything is, is fine and safe. I think I find these just as insulting uh, and, and also just as dangerous as, as uh, misogyny. But coming back to, um, to Marie Curie and this example of her, well... It's, I mean, there's a general saying, right, that success has many parents and, and failures and orphans. So obviously, when you have a successful uh, sort of product, then people will try to claim that for themselves. And it's very easy to put down people who have little power. So in the past, of course, people of little power were women, were people of color, were people of low social standing. So these were automatically the ones who were trying to, who people were trying to uh, uh, take success from and, and sort of attribute it to themselves. So I think as long as the structures remain the same, we will always be in this in this problematic situation. We have to attack the structures. We have to make sure that um, that no one is in the situation where they don't have enough power to to claim what's rightfully theirs. I think in the religious world, there is a great history of defining oneself over and against the other. And that's true, particularly when it comes to the Abrahamic faiths, um, with uh, uh, Christians in the very early churches understanding themselves as not Jews. Uh, and likewise, with the development uh, of Islam being the perfection of Christianity and Judaism. So there's this sort of reaction over and against. But bringing it to the question of gender, I wonder whether there's something to be learned from this religious history 
and this religious environment. So, Catherine, initially to you, you worked in very religious environments in the Middle East, particularly Muslim-dominant environments or majority environments that were very patriarchal. Um, did you use, if I can put it like this, uh, your gender as a means of navigating that environment in a way that men could not? In other words, could you take advantage of your gender or was that something that you didn't even consider? So to be a woman in the Middle East certainly has advantages. Um, it also has disadvantages. Uh, I mean, going back to what we were saying earlier about being the other, um, as a foreigner, uh, one is able to fall into what has often loosely been described as the third gender. So you um, you are able to participate in activities in, in, in many societies which uh, might be precluded for uh, women from that society, but you are allowed to come in because you are a foreign woman um, and or you are a foreign woman with a title. So you almost become your title. You you are the, the first secretary, the second secretary, the ambassador, whatever it is, um, the CEO. Um, you aren't um, a woman. The advantage, of course, is that it plays the other way. So you have access to environments um, in the same way that men do. Not not 100%, but I'd say there's probably enough of an 80% overlap that, that one, can, one can do the job just differently. Well, of course, as a woman, I would have complete access to the female parts of society, which would still be almost inaccessible to a man. And therefore, you, you can see both parts of the society. And of course, women in the Middle East um, and in Islamic societies are themselves increasingly powerful. Could you give us an example? As a British diplomat, um, I would have the ability to um, engage as a diplomat in the same way with the same groups of people and with the same limitations because it was difficult for men um, as well as, as women because of the relationship between the UK and Iran at the time. But I was able to wear that armour of my embassy business card and engage with whomever I wanted in exactly the same way. And those did include religious clerics whom I might not... Um, typically have been expected to engage with um, as a woman. Now, obviously, there was the cultural wrapper around that. I was always dressed appropriately. Um, I did that across the Middle East. And by that, I mean culturally appropriately to them rather than my own view of what is acceptable female dress. Um, and I did that wherever I was. And of course, in Iran, that was a legal obligation. But I did that even where it wasn't a legal obligation, um, because I think that if you extend respect, you receive respect. Uh, Miriam, did you react to your grandmother, that, that image of your grandmother uh, yes. telling you uh, that you basically have to minister to men? Um, yes. Did, you, did, did it strike you then as, no, I'm not going to do this? Oh, yes. No, absolutely. I think this is the one thing that sort of saved me. I grew up with fairy tales. I had this book of fairy tales about strong women. And I read that very, very regularly. And these sort of stories, these narratives really, really helped me. And I was always, I mean, from, even though I was exposed to the sort of, um, uh, sort of stereotyping from, uh, from my family and also from teachers, from uh, it's a sort of normal society, I always thought it wasn't right because of those, for, because of those narratives, because of those stories that sort of told me, no, it's, it's not right. I was also very struck by something that Miriam um, and Ed were saying about how coronavirus may affect um, roles within the household. Uh, because certainly, again, within the Foreign Office, one of the very striking things that's happened in the last few years is how um, until shared parental leave came in, uh, 
paternity leave was a couple of weeks and maternity leave was the big chunk, chunk of time off. And therefore, that was something that very specifically affected um, women. And there were structural answers that the Foreign Office had to try and mitigate that. But what has been really powerful and far more powerful, in my view, than any of the um, structural measures was the fact that with shared parental leave, it's now as likely to be a man who is off for several months as it is a woman. And suddenly it's become quite normal for anyone going into a role to be likely to take time off to look after children. And I think by creating that um, equality of expectation, that's really when you start seeing the, the barriers being removed. A wonderful way to end this episode. Thanks to my guests, Catherine Arnold and Esther Miriam Wagner. And thanks to you two for listening. If you'd like to get in touch with any comments or reflections of your own, you can email nakedreflections at wolf.cam.ac.uk. And let us know what subjects you'd like to hear more about. We'd love to hear from you. In the meantime, you can find more episodes of Naked Reflections and subscribe to Naked Reflections podcast wherever you access your podcast or at nakedscientists.com reflections. Do join us next time. <laughs>